Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, the show that takes you on the deep dive of all the things happening in the industry. Now, sometimes it's a show about passion projects, and sometimes it's a show about travel trends, and sometimes it's a show about somebody making jam around the corner in their house. But it all kind of comes back to the industry. Now, for those of you who are new here, thanks so much for joining me. A little background on who I am and what I do. I've been covering the DC food, wine, and hospitality scene for the last 20 years. Oh my God. Uh, I launched the list, areyouonit.com, literally 20 years ago this month. Uh, it's the only uh, food and wine variety e-zine in the DC metro area. And if you are interested in where to eat or what to do and what's happening, it is all in there. Of course, you hear me every week on WTOP. I do regular reports for them. You tune in Sundays to um, 1500, Foodie and the Beast. Uh, DC area's only food and wine variety show with my husband. We've been doing that for 14 years and it is always fun. Uh, you follow me on social media at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And here we are, industry night, in the beautiful Wine Lair Private Wine Club here in DC, right next to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Um, if you haven't had a chance to check out the Wine Lair, you really should. Not only can you be surrounded by all these fabulous bottles of wine, but they have a beautiful bar, a beautiful room to hang out in. They do events for non-members, so check that out on the list, areyouonit.com. But if you are a member, they do amazing events. So uh, please check out what they do because it's an amazing organization and I'm so thrilled that they have me here. Okay, so normally at this part of the show, I take you on my travels for the week. But since I'm doing two shows today, which is why I'm wearing the same outfit, by the way, so don't be judgy, um, you... Uh, I have no place to tell you about, but when I come back, I will have been done some, I will be eating out a lot and also have done a lot of travel. So get ready. And of course, don't forget to follow me on Instagram. Oh, and don't forget, if you're listening to us, we are also now on YouTube. So that is just launched. We've put all the episodes up. It's really fun and really terrific. So subscribe, comment, question, let us know what you think and ask questions because I'll get you the answers. That's what I do. Okay. So. Many of you know, over the summer, I had the good fortune to be a part of an amazing group of food, wine, and hospitality leaders who were tasked with opening our minds and bearing our souls, personally and professionally, on a legit 24-7, nonstop, action-packed journey to Israel. It was known as Reality Israel, and we were team taste. So I learned so much about the complexities of the region and the importance of food culture. And I walked away with way more questions than answers. Um, and I was also given this like incredible family that I met in those if for just one week. Now I can wax poetic forever about the trip, uh, and everything I learned and what happened, but it wouldn't have been what it was without the incredible leadership of Michael Bauer. So Michael, who's here with me is a professional educator and I hate calling him a tour guide because he's so much more than that. But as a field educator, he has over 25 years of experience and has led adventure tours all around Israel, Jordan, the Sinai Desert, Turkey. Um, and he's guided and taught senators and parliament members um, from different countries, military people, celebrities, um, and me. So um, he's also the author of Israel Journey, eight days in one of the world's most complex countries. And I'm so thrilled because he's here in the United States for a week touting his book, and he's joining me today. Hi. 
Hi, thank you, Nikki. It's, it's so great good to, to be here. Oh, it's so good to see you. So, okay, let's start a little bit about your background and how you became such an expert on Israel and the region, the Middle East. So first, so first of all, as you can hear by my accent, I was born in Israel, mm-hmm. and I'm fluent in both languages, Hebrew and, and Arabic. And uh, I started working in the world of field education as pretty much as an outdoor person, taking people canyoning in Jordan, Sinai, south of Israel. I started, when I was after the military, working with youth of risk, taking them into the desert, and slowly the content, the content drew my mind. Can I back up for a second? You were born and raised in Israel. Were you taught... Both Hebrew, English, no. and Arabic. Where did Arabic no. come in? So Hebrew is my native language. Uh-huh. English I learned in school, although I was born to a family where both of them immigrated to Israel. Mm. None of them spoke English well. My dad was originally an Austrian who was raised in England. My mom is a French person. But the only language they could speak with one another was English. And therefore, I was taught English by two people that it's not their mother tongue. Okay. But that's why I speak mm-hmm. English. And... Um, Arabic, we learn in school as Jews in Israel. We do learn it in school, but I wouldn't say that we actually get to know it. I learned it later, later on in academia. I studied Middle East studies, and then throughout my life experience, I just gathered it mm-hmm. in the field. So you started with adventure tours, and but what was it that you were looking to do with these adventure tours? I mean, I know you're really into canyoning and right. all this sort of extreme adventure uh, lifestyle, right. but how did it... How did it evolve over time? So when I, when I started in the, in the 90s, really what interested me at the time was more the physical, adrenaline, outdoor elements of traveling. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially when I started traveling into Jordan and Sinai, and I started to experience um, a connection and a relationship with the Arab culture in a different way than what I experienced as an Israeli growing up in Israel within a conflict. And the background that I had in the military uh, I had a very specific lens of looking into the Arab surrounding of Israel. Mm. And actually going there in a complete different mindset opened my mind and actually got me very, very curious. And that's when I went to study also Middle East and then history, history of Israel, history of the, of the region, and started to switch away. I always, I mean, outdoors is my, is my hobby and passion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but slowly the concept of content... Um, geopolitics, culture, history, uh, started to draw my attention. And, I, and as you saw, that's more of what I, what I do. Well, it, it is what you do, and you do so well. Um, I think it's such a, the Middle East is such a massive, uh, there's so much history there, obviously, and there's right. so much troubles there, and there, there has awesome. been forever and ever. And I, I, I really don't feel that in the United States, we, are, we just get snippets. Do you know what I mean? We right. know that there's problems in the Middle East. And if you're Jewish, you know about Israel. And if you're not Jewish, you know about Israel. But, I mean, so many people think Jews are Israelis. I mean, you know, right. they don't... There's a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of misinformation. Right. So how do you start with people, Jewish, non-Jewish? Like, our trip with reality was primarily non-Jewish. Right. Um, so how do you... St- I know how you start. But how do you start with people when they come to Israel? How do you start explaining the country? So you say the sentence of Israel in the Middle East has a lot of history. Mm-hmm. In fact, every place has as much history because every place has history. The difference is, I think the reason why you, you said what you said mm-hmm. is because the history of Israel and its surroundings, A, was written down, 
and in some point was written down into a bestseller called the Bible. <laughs> and probably because of that, it affected so many civilizations around the world. Mm. And therefore, the history of Israel is different than any other history. Not more, not less in content, but its ability of changing people's life and affecting people is very different. Mm-hmm. So if you're coming to America, which I would argue that a lot of the American culture and there's a lot of different American cultures within American culture, but there's a lot of influence of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're Jewish, you're definitely influenced by Judaism. It's coming from Jerusalem. If you're a Christian, it's from Jerusalem. And if you're Muslim, also Jerusalem is part of the story. <laughs> so it's not only that there's history. When I take people like yourself and you are a group of multicultural, multi-religious and multi-narrative people, mm-hmm. I, t- I took you, for example, to the old city of Jerusalem and it was not me, the local guide, taking you through my city and telling you stories, which would be nice. But it was me that happened to live there telling you your own story, no matter who you are. And right. everyone in that group, which was so different from one another, actually, Jerusalem was their story. And I think that's the biggest impact that the place has on people like your group. Mm-hmm. And that just happened to be the, the channel. The facilitator yeah, the facilitator. Well, I, I guess that's true. But you're taking, you're also providing context. Um, I don't want to jump to Jerusalem because we started in Tel Aviv, which is a more progressive, Mm -hmm. kind of sexier area. People are really fit there. Everybody looks really good on that boardwalk. Um, It's a great, I I love Tel Aviv. I just was totally blown away by it. But we started with, because I want to intersperse, because we were taste, some of the food. Do you do do food on all your trips? Is is how people in the Middle East eat part of the conversation all the time, or yeah. was it specific to our so trip? F- first of all, it was more to your trip because you mm-hmm. were a group of people that are coming from the world of taste and uh-huh. uh, culinary industry. But obviously, food is always part of every trip because, first of all, people need to eat. Right. And if you're going to eat anyways, why wouldn't you learn from that experience? And Israel has known right. for terrific food. Right. Um, and also, I'm just, I have to say this, because before I went to Israel, this was my first time there. Before I went to Israel, everybody was like, oh, the breakfast in Israel. Right. And I was like, I mean, I don't understand what people are talking about. It's just breakfast. But those breakfasts and those hotels are crazy, like insane. I've never seen anything like it in my entire life. What is that? So, it's not how Israelis eat. No, but I, I'll, I'll be honest, if you wouldn't tell me that it's special, I would think that we are normal and the breakfast that I had this morning in the hotel was a, but, bit, a bit lame. Right. <laughs> I didn't realize that we are the different people. Sure. But um, yeah, we eat well and mm-hmm. food is important. Mm-hmm. And um, every group that comes, usually food is part of the story. Whether, even if you give people a break of half an hour, so they want to have falafel or shawarma, and then they're wondering which one to take and which hummus and... A big discussion in Israel will be what is the best hummus to have. And I'm not talking about fancy places. I'm talking about authentic places. You have the discussion between the Arab and Jewish communities, mm-hmm. which food belongs to whom. And uh, since it's a place itself, even though Israel, and it's, we're talking about people living there are Jewish and an Arab. But if I'm looking at the Jewish communities in, in particular, it's a community that did come from a lot of different places, mm-hmm. pretty much all over the world. Each one of them immigrated here. Usually now it's already second or third generation, but they came with their own cuisine. Their own food. Right. Sure. So we go to Tel Aviv. Ethiopian food mm-hmm. is actually of local Ethiopians. It's their food. So every food that is actually international, the people that are making it are actually looking at it as their own authentic sure. I don't think Which I'm, is similar to what you will have in. in I was going to say. I mean, America, in the United right. States, I mean, we have t- 
Thai restaurants and Chinese right. restaurants and Indian restaurants from right. specific regions, Italian restaurants. I mean, we all have foods from our cultures and others' cultures as now a part of the community, right? right? And I think that's in Europe. It's it's, ev right. it's, it's everywhere, right. right? It's part of the global world. Right, which is a beautiful thing. Hopefully mm -hmm. it brings us closer together than further apart. Um, but as, so one of the places we stopped at in Tel Aviv was Asif, this culinary center, right. which I found really interesting because, um, first of all, they had this exhibit on bread, which I thought was fantastic, the history of bread. Right. Um, but they, in Tel Aviv and in, Asif specifically, they really were making sure that they were not offensive in claiming it as Israel's food, that it is the food of the land of where they are, which became a larger conversation in our Absolutely. trip. So how do you, for is that something that you sort of parlay to other people when we talk about Israel and context and um, how others may view what's right. happening? So in Israel, in many ways, unfortunately, also that would make it partly interesting. Everything is political. Right. Everything is political. Mm. You have a bite of falafel. You'd want to take a break from, and it's political. So uh, always the question is, oh, who owns the food? Now, I don't think that discussion should have been brought up at all, but it is a discussion that is there. Mm. One of the things that when you're looking at, at Jews in general, what is Jewish food? Mm. Well, Depends on where you're from. Exactly. So when you're looking at Israel, you go into Tel Aviv, you look at the, at, I'm talking about the Jews, I'm not talking about the Arab people that are mm -hmm. living there as well, I'm looking at the Jewish people that are living over there, I'm going to look at the people. Some of them are coming from Ethiopia, from Africa, some of them are coming from Morocco, Iraq, Poland, Russia, all of that. Right. What is the Jewish food? Each one of them brought the cuisine. So when a Jew came from Iraq or Morocco or Lebanon, and they came from all those places, his traditional authentic food was Arab food because they are Arab Jews, Arab is an ethnicity, right. it's a culture, it's not a religion. So you can be a, a Jewish Arab person, a Christian Arab person, and so on. So really falafel... Which I don't think, it's not that people don't know that. I just but don't they don't think, realize that. They don't realize it, yes. They don't realize it. Yeah, it's a, when you say that, people say, oh yeah, sure, but they don't, they don't pay attention. Right. And therefore, because we have, unfortunately, an Israeli-Arab conflict, an Israeli-Palestinian conflict, when Israelis claim falafel is an Israeli food, and Israelis truly believe that it's, that it's an Israeli food. The challenge is that it's also Lebanese food. It's also Palestinian food. Right. It's also Egypt, not Egyptian. It's like Egyptian, kebabs. But, kebabs. Right. Like, don't even get that story. The kebab issue started with, right. you know, certain uh, countries because everybody thinks the kebab is theirs. Right. But I actually can solve the discussion oh, let's relatively hear it. easily. Okay, and I'll let's tell hear you how. It. Because if the discussion is about who owns the land, so that is a discussion of who owns falafel. Mm -hmm. But if we can change the conversation, and instead of us arguing who owns the land, just accept the fact that we belong to the land. Mm. And then if we belong to the land, the land itself owns the local food, the local ingredients, and we are just part of it. Right. And therefore, falafel is Israeli, falafel is Lebanese, falafel is Palestinians, and we don't need to argue. Whose it is. Exactly. Well, I like so that. So it's part of a political discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's again, it's part of something deeper, which has to do with identity and conflict and and ownership and mutual recognition. And it comes out in food as well. Well, that's so unfortunate, not to say it's any different here, because um, food there are food politics here in the States right. as well in a, in a totally different way. Not that this is ours, can't right. be yours. Um, it has to do more with access and waste and things of that nature and socioeconomics of who, who mm -hmm. can get 
good food. Um, but when we talk about it in the um, Israel lens, like we did at Asif, um, I thought what was interesting was how they came about it. But then when we did go up to Jerusalem, it was a little more, wasn't as easy. There were more people willing to take a stand um, and be more political, I think, you know, and when we were in the Jerusalem markets and walking around and we had hummus, we had Arab hummus and we had Jewish. I mean, we had all of it. You know, there was so many different things to taste um, and it didn't matter to me at all whose it was. But I know it's it's a source of pride for right. the people who live there. So first of all, I have to say that as someone that lives there, I don't experience this political discussion around food on a daily basis. Okay. We are normal. We eat at the Arab places. Arabs eat with us. We work together. Most kitchens in Jerusalem and in Tel Aviv, you'll have Arab and Jewish chefs and people working together, and no one is arguing those topics. Mm-hmm. When it is brought up, and it's brought up once in a while, it is fascinating, and it draws the attention, and mm-hmm. here we are talking about it. But I will say that because we were a group on a program that was semi-culinary tour and semi-geopolitical Mm. program, it all came together, I would say that it is not as much of a big discussion mm-hmm. as I think we're making out of it right now. It's definitely there. People that are maybe really um, living it in it, like in the Asif Center, so it's part of their life because people right. reclaim that is they deal with it. But otherwise, when you're on the streets, if you, ask my, if you would ask my friends, which are not in the business of expanding Israel and dealing with they would not have a clue what you're talking about. Mm. I'm not even sure that most Israelis would understand They'd be the like, question. What's, what's the no, issue? It's a, good, it's a good question because it's there. I'm not saying it's not there. It's no, 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 I there. hear you. But most people would not even, would not realize what you picked up. Well, we picked it up specifically. I mean, listen, Asif was part of that story right. and we learned more about it when we were in Jerusalem. But then we had this issue in the, we went, we got to go to the West Bank, right. which I know as a Jewish person, most People do not travel to the West Bank. And I had the ability to go do that. Right. Um, and, but there was a pretty dramatic issue on our trip. Right. Um, a chef who was supposed to do the cooking demo, take right. us to the markets, felt that he was hoodwinked, uh, that we were some, that the group was, you know, I don't know. I don't know what he thought. He thought it was promoting Israel and, right. you know, wanted nothing to do with us. But the thing that upset me the most about that experience was that he was saying, you should come here to the West Bank to see what I do so you understand my story. And I was like, yeah, I mean, dude, that's what we were trying to do. And instead, we wound up with this lovely woman who was Palestinian. I mean, we went to a a Palestinian uh, olive oil place and brewery. I know you couldn't join us. Yeah, Yeah. I was was there. Were you there? I was with you. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. Uh, anyway, but, you know, we, but then I guess we had a Palestinian guide, right? And right. she right. took us to these places and we got to hear the real stories. I mean, she was, the woman at the brewery was like, listen, I, I'm just trying to sell my beer. You know, I just, I want to sell my beer. I want to sell my olive oil. We're just trying to live our lives. Right. Um, and then with the woman who did the cooking, while she was cooking, we had uh, three Israelis on the trip. And uh, the woman, uh, the Palestinian um, guide, and uh, somebody else was with her. I can't remember who, but it was also Palestinian. And they were having this impromptu talk. And it, everybody just sort of, sort of gradually navigated over 
to listen to them because they live there and to talk about the issues. And I was like, God, that guy really missed an important an opportunity, opportunity right. right? So first of all, I'll just say for, for our audience mm-hmm. that uh, many people do go to the West Bank, but not necessarily go <laughs> to the part of the West Bank that you've been where, where the population is living in, into Ramallah, into Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. We went to the brewery in, in Taibe. Because um, some people just drive through the West Bank for areas that are more rural. Mm. And it is very nice, but it, they don't really experience the Palestinian challenges, which you did. And uh, you saw a great example of two Palestinian people. Both of them, um, I'll say, are challenged by the reality that they live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one, his frustration did not allow him to actually take advantage of a situation of telling story because he was completely free to share his story through food. Mm-hmm. And the other actually embraced the opportunity to share the story. And you can just see that, you know, people are different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you never know what happened to those people before, what actually, you know, led them what to that started kind of that mindset. Day. We point. don't, we don't, I, I can tell you, partly we don't have the full story. Also part of the story that I'm aware behind the scenes is so complicated. And um, for the sake of some of the people that helped us arrange the program, I can't even go into details. Mm. It is super for us complicated to manage some of those uh, programs. But, um, but you're right. You could actually use food as an opportunity of telling a story. Mm-hmm. And that specific man just missed his opportunity, but someone else took it and I think it was a very, very educational Oh, um, afternoon. It really, really uh, was. It was, um, I, it just taught me so much. I mean, it allowed for obviously amazing conversations right. with you because everybody had so many questions. I mean, and they were asking you because right. a lot of people didn't understand the nuances of the conflict. Right. What, they didn't understand what he was saying. So you were able really to provide some structure with that. Um, also, when we went over to the Gullen Heights and we were able to look out on the border. Right. I, I mean, the rich, uh, we're just not taught that history. You know what I mean? Unless you have a, a, a interest in the history and where the lines are drawn and who's at war with who and why. Like when you said you were going over to Jordan, I was like, wait, were you allowed to go to Jordan? Like, didn't that change recently? Change, yeah. yeah. Um, how long ago did it change? No, so in the 1994, we had a peace agreement with Jordan and we were able to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of the time that I spent, a, a lot of time in Jordan was in the 90s. And there was a bit of a renaissance after the peace agreement. And mm-hmm. the 90s in general is this decade of renaissance where a lot of us actually believed we're just about to achieve peace. Mm-hmm. There's a few more things we need to do. And unfortunately, around the year 2000, it all pretty much fell apart. Was that because and, of uh, the Israeli government or just too many things, too many things to get into? It depends who you ask. Okay. <laughs> it depends who you ask. Mm-hmm. But um but the, the bottom line is it's all it's it's it all collapsed mm-hmm. and um people still go to jordan people go to sinai and uh but other countries as lebanon and syria israelis cannot go sure um and actually when we, when we stood on that lookout and we looked into syria i'm just you know we're sitting today and today's the news out of syria that's terrible i terrible. just want to say to acknowledge the fact that we are that we are right now going through horrible days. Um, that's mm-hmm. over 20,000 people killed between Syria and Turkey. And just right. not to find that same rift that goes all the way from Turkey. So Syria was the Israel. earthquake felt in Israel? Yes, mm-hmm. it was felt. There was actually 40 earthquakes in the region. Mm-hmm. Nothing close to what was going on in Syria and Turkey. Mm-hmm. There were three <clears throat> earthquakes which were a bit stronger that were felt. But nothing, nothing in like comparison to, the, to what that's was going up um, north there. Horrible, horrible, right. horrible. Um, 
Well, so to that point, so seeing that, learning that story, which was so important. Um, and I, I think what was interesting is, um, when we went back to Jerusalem, uh, that night, I mean, that was such an emotional day. That was a tough day. Yeah. That night we went to, I can't pronounce it. So I'm not at the Orthodox quarter, the Haredi. The Haredim. Yeah. Haredim. We went to Measharim. Yes. And we actually did a tasting tour. Um, you know, going and seeing what different people's uh, foods are. I really struggled being there. I found it really uncomfortable. Um, it's funny. I mean, I'm Jewish, but I'm not religious. But a lot of the, several of the people on the trip that I became friendly with who were not Jewish would ask me questions. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm the wrong one. I don't, I don't know that one. But like, sometimes I was like, oh, cause one of the right. guys uh, said to me, Hey, what's, what's with this? I was like, oh, I know that one. That one I can answer. Um, but I found that experience, it just made my skin crawl. I just, I was very uncomfortable. And I will just tell you quickly what happened for me afterwards. So we had our, you know, we have our separate meetings afterwards. I know you're not a part of them. But we were talking about it and I was saying the same thing. And one of the women in my group said, Nikki, are you Jewish? And I was like, um, yes. I mean, I'm in Israel of all places where I should be like, yeah, of course I'm Jewish. But in my head, when people think of Jews, and I'm sure you know about what's going on in this country Absolutely. right now with anti-Semitism, um, I think they think of the Orthodox. They think of the Hasids, the Lubavitch. They think of right. the people with the hats, and that's who they think I am. And I'm like, I'm not that. Right. I mean, you shouldn't be anti-Semitic against them either, right. but, but you understand my, where I'm coming from. Completely. So perhaps... <clears throat> Maybe, maybe even to more clarify what, what's behind what you're saying mm -hmm. for the audience. Yes, please. Ju Judaism, mm -hmm. and we, we can see what kosher rules, how do they play into that. Judaism is not necessarily a religion. Mm. And that is, I think, one of the most important things that we Jews need to tell the non-Jewish world. What do I mean by that? It is a religion, but not necessarily a religion. And I can prove it very easily. If I ask you, Nikki, are you Jewish? You'll say yes. If I'll ask you, are you religious? You'll say no. And then if you're Jewish and not religious, mathematically, Judaism and religion are not the same thing. Mm. So in this case, if it's not religion or not necessarily religion to be accurate, because it is a religion, but not necessarily one. So what is it? It's a people. It's an ethnicity. It's a culture. It's an identity. Mm. And it's a religion. So within Jews, you have the people that religion is important for them. For example, the ultra-orthodox that are, I would almost say on the, I wouldn't almost. I would say on the extreme way I'll of... I'll say it for you. To me, right. they're a cult. Like when I walk so, around there and I see them and the women do all the work and the men get to study and I mean, God bless them, do your right. thing. But I look at that and I'm like, that looks like a cult to right. me. That does not resonate with me because it's so strict and there are all these, like nothing about right. that. Anyway, so whatever. I would not use I the word cult, but I understand what you, mm -hmm. where you're coming from. Okay. And for, so for them... Absolutely. Judaism is a religion. It, they are religious. And you are not less Jewish. You are as Jewish as them. Mm -hmm. But what it means for you to be Jewish is something just different. You are Jewish because that's your identity. It's your culture. And you're part of that, those people mm -hmm. that consider themselves as Jewish. Which is actually interesting because on one hand, while those ultra-orthodox people that make you feel uncomfortable are your people, <laughs> culturally, you are more distant from them than you are from friends of yours that are not Jewish at all, they're not your people, but you're actually the same. Mm -hmm. More than that, I'm walking here in Washington and I see people that are not Jewish, not Israeli. Well, 
a, a random liberal American and I am way more like him or like her than I am next to my neighbor that live a few blocks away. But still, in my mind, they are my people, though they're not. Mm. That is maybe, you know, we need to go for a shrink to understand how we think. But um, you are, as a Jew as them, you are just different right. in the way you... Um, in the way you define what Judaism is. Yes. And I think that what the kosher strict rules, going back to, to food, yes. did, they did two things. On one hand, they kept the Jews away from their surroundings mm. because if, if food is a way of getting together, if food is a way of getting to know one another, if I'm kosher and you're not, I can't, I can't, eat I can't, with you. I can't come, I can't eat with you. Mm -hmm. So that basic authentic way of just, you know, removing all boundaries, let's just have food, right? They could not do, hmm. which... Was it intentional? Them. Do you think that was intentional? I know the laws, are the rules are so archaic, but I never thought of it that way. So it was not intentional in the first place, mm -hmm. because remember the Jews were maintaining the kosher rule before. Mm -hmm. Most cultures that are living around them were created. But in a certain point, I can definitely see the intention because while I'm saying it kept them segregated in a way, that's what kept them. So the father of the Jewish Enlightenment, his name was Mendelssohn, he had nine grandchildren, mm -hmm. only one was Jewish. So in many ways, in an area which was hostile, I'm looking at Europe right now, but you could look at other places as well, mm -hmm. if they wouldn't have that kind of segregated wall called the kosher strict rules, their integration might lead them to become like everyone else. Mm -hmm. Maybe that was good for many of them, but that might be that they would not have been Judaism. So the kosher rules in many ways, definitely by Orthodox people, they will say that's what kept us. That so, is fascinating. And it makes so, when you say that. Right. And as I'm saying that, I am so not kosher. Huh? I, I'm, I'm saying that it is important for me to say I am not kosher. Mm -hmm. I would eat in anyone's place. But I do understand what's standing behind that fear sure. of integration. Definitely when I'm looking at the history of Jews, in the 18th, 17th century, that's not America of today. Right. Well, so, you know, my grandparents kept kosher in the house. They didn't get kosher out of the house. So I grew up with it to a certain extent. Right. But I didn't really, I, I didn't really, I mean, I know the basic laws of it, but, um, you know, she had different plates for Passover right. and silverware and stuff like that. But they didn't let it stop them from eating out and right. doing things. And I'll never forget... Um, going to uh, a friend's house who was kosher, maybe, I can't remember how it was, but somebody brought something to the house and they sort of made like a big deal because it wasn't kosher. And I remember my grandmother saying, my father would have never done that. He would have accepted it. He would have said, thank you. He would have given it to somebody else. He would have called it a day. Right. And I think the, for me, and I can say this because my previous show, we talked about the pleasures of food. To me, the restrictions on food because of the kosher laws, takes away the pleasure of it. Right. Do you know what I mean? But com Completely. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but at the same time, I'm looking back in history, that might have been what the reason why we, two Jews right now are sitting in Washington right. and having a conversation. Who knows whatever happened? Who, who would we be? Right. No. If it wouldn't be for that, we'll never know. We'll never know. No, all true. Now, I want to just jump a minute and get, you mentioned the Ethiopian Jewish Right. story. So when we were in Jerusalem, I think, right, we had a, we had a dinner um, at this Ethiopian restaurant with Ethiopian music, and it was so much fun. It mm -hmm. was a total party. 
But part everything we did, there was always a story. Whether you were telling the story or somebody else had a story to tell, which is it's just what made the trip so magical. But they told their story about being Ethiopian Jews, and I had never heard that story. I did not know they were Jewish, not that it mattered, but I was like, oh, my goodness. So can you talk a little bit about that history? Because right. it's fascinating. So Jews were scattered all around the world throughout history. Mm-hmm. And without going for a history lesson, but there's a few occasions, you know, the destruction of the Second Temple, Second right. Century. I mean, I'm talking about ancient times. And that's how Jews arrived to Europe, which is probably your ancestors. Mm-hmm. Jews arrived everywhere. Jews arrived to Spain. Jews arrived to Africa. Jews arrived to India, to everywhere. Mm-hmm. And in those places, because of their very strict rules, kosher as an example, mm-hmm. They did not blend into the local societies. Mm-hmm. Because if you're looking at all those cases of that expulsion out of the region, not only Jews were expelled, there was a lot, read the Bible, there's a lot of people, right. a lot of nations, Palatites and Canaanites and Midianites and a whole list of people. They're no longer here, meaning their descendants are, but their identity is, is gone. Mm-hmm. Those strict rules that Jews had throughout years, everywhere they went, right? Uh, kept them as Jews. So mm-hmm. you had Jewish communities in every place of the world. And then when Israel, when Israel was formed, and even already starting a bit before, but definitely right after 1948, you started to see those waves of Jewish immigration coming, as far as they're concerned, coming back. Mm-hmm. Even if it's after a long while, but coming back to their homeland. Ethiopians were, did not arrive right away. Um, and in the late 70s, the Israeli government decided we should include the Ethiopians and bring them to Israel as well as we brought in the Yemenites and the sure. Moroccans and all the rest of the people. So they arrived over here in a few operations, which is a dramatic story of Ethiopian families walking through the desert right. all the way to Sudan. Uh, a lot of people were raped and killed and robbed mm-hmm. all the way. Many times we tell the story about the Israeli Mossad secret services going and rescue them. The real heroes of that story are those families walking in the desert with this Unbelievable I mean, vision of just literally walking to Jerusalem. One of the women. Right. It's like out of the Bible. Right. I mean, seriously. It is. And it's, and it's happening now in, in this century. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we met that woman called Ashage, which was born on that route. Right. And her mother literally was just walking to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And that is an, an, an incredible story. It's an incredible story that shows you this power of the lack of belonging to where they were, which was going on for thousands of years. Right. And the sense of belonging to the new place called Jerusalem, mm-hmm. that's one part of the story. The story of Israel, which was actually created in order to facilitate the ability of Jews to live in Israel. Mm-hmm. But then also, unfortunately, there's another part of the story, that there were Jews in Ethiopia when they come to Israel, where most people are Jews, they are now Ethiopian. Right. And uh, on one hand, they want and they should maintain their identity and culture and food, mm-hmm. but at the same time, they need to do a fast course of integrating into a starving nation. Mm-hmm. And then Ethiopian Jews came not, from... It's not a, a dissimilar story for any immigrant right. going to any country, right? right? That's true. But true, mm-hmm. in their case, they came not only from Africa, they came from rural Africa mm-hmm. right now. So they literally were walking from rural Africa to a place where you needed to introduce to them the idea of a refrigerator, a microwave. Sure. I mean, I'm talking about the simple, right. right. And Israel is a very technological advanced economy. Mm-hmm. The integration was very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Needless to say that unfortunately, we Israelis were quite normal in a negative sense of the word. So there's also elements of racism. Sure. Like there's in other places. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Although the story that she told 
about her family when they arrived, which I've loved, was when she said, huh, there are white Jews. Right. And I was like, good for, right. Right. Because. They did not know. They didn't know. True. And um, so they did not know about the white Jews. A, a lot of white Jews, by the way. Right. Maybe they knew, but they didn't realize. Right. Well, and I should say, because I got a whole lesson a couple of weeks ago, I, I did a, an interview, it's not aired yet, uh, with uh, Lenitra Berger, who is a professor of African-American studies and literature and art at George Mason, and her counterpart, who is uh, Julia, Julia Strauss, and she is a professor at American University. They host a class together. She's cool. on Judaic studies. They host a class, like they're both hosting the class at their schools, but it is about the um, diaspora of uh, Jews and blacks and where they cross over. Right. And um, it's such an interesting conversation, right. right? Because it is about where the cultures meet, not just here in the States, but around the world. And she, Julia said to me, she said, well, I don't, identify as white and I was like I mean you may not identify as white but you present as white I was like I would never say I'm not white because I present as white I feel like that would be wrong because Lenitra is black she doesn't have a choice so and for you because you live in Israel how is that how is it defined so, over there is it different so one of yes because okay. one of the challenges that we have for me as a storyteller that's telling, you know, people in this case from North America, mm -hmm. where issue of color and race is a conversation that you are having here in America. Mm -hmm. We're having different conversations, but they're, they're quite different. Mm. So we do not, I do not, I do not represent myself as white in the sense that you do in America. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my grandma is from North Africa. Mm -hmm. um, I know that's my, my color. But the, the question is, when we say white, what do we actually mean? But we don't have that conversation of mm -hmm. we're white, not white. Because before the uh, Ethiopian came, we had another division between what we call Ashkenazi European Jews to North African and Middle Eastern Jews. Right. And that is also um, the, the, the element of color, but there was issues of discrimination by the Europeans towards the Middle Eastern people. And then the Ethiopians come and they were discriminated by all of them together. Right. I mean, the last person that comes is discriminated by the people that arrived 10, 10 minutes before. And the next person that will arrive will be discriminated by the people that are already there. Right. Unfortunately, as old as time. unfortunately, right, that's uh, the story. Mm -hmm. But I think that it is a bit of a different conversation. And people, when they come from the States, they're trying to understand as well through their own lenses. And that doesn't necessarily work. Mm. It's just different. And there's some similarities, but it's a different, it's a different story. No, I agree with you. It was interesting to have that conversation because right. it never, it never even occurred to me. Right. Right. So I was, it, the whole thing was interesting. Okay. Let's talk about your book, Michael Bauer, This Real Journey. It's a great book. He brought me an extra copy because my copy is falling apart because I read it. My husband read it. My dad read it. Yeah. Um, Eight days in one of the world's most complex countries. Right. What was it? What made you decide to put this on paper? So I'm telling those stories for many, many years. And uh, I thought that, why don't I just write it down? Mm -hmm. And I wanted, I wanted to write a diary of a program like yours, of a group of people that are multicultural, multireligious, multinational, mm -hmm. multi-whatever you, whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And uh, the problem is that if I put, people or a big group, uh, the, the, the reader cannot follow. Mm. So I picked eight characters that I invented. They don't exist. 
but um, one is a woman from China, two of them are from Germany, one is a uh, second generation of a Nazi, uh, an Israeli, a Jew, an Arab from Lebanon, a Pakistani Muslim woman. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to create a multicultural, multi-narrative group of people. They're created, but I put on them all my experience of now it's about 26 years of reading right. groups of that kind. So every interaction, every question that they ask uh, with me or with themselves actually happened. Mm-hmm. They don't exist, but everything that is in the book happens. Mm-hmm. And for me, those eight people are a tool to tell a story about Israel. So I'm just writing down that diary. Mm-hmm. But because I'm not obligated to the fact that they're tired and hungry, I can just go on and on. Right. So I'm able to go to places that we didn't go in the group. I'm going to the Gaza parameter. I'm definitely going to the West Bank, to, Ram- mm-hmm. to Ramallah, to Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. We are traveling also the Palestinian guide. And the fact that they are coming from a multi-narrative background is protecting me from being biased, mm. right? They are my protection because I do need to cater for them because Israel is not one story. There is an Israel for the Jew, there's an Israeli for the Palestinian, there's an Israeli for the more religious people, for the more less religious people. Right. Um, and it's all true and it's all real. People say narrative. The narratives are true. They're just a different point of view. And only if I have people that actually see things differently and I really will try and cater to them, that will make sure that I, I'm not sure if I'll succeed 100%, but I'll at least make the efforts of providing a fair, a fair story. Mm-hmm. So that's the story. It's eight days of a diary. We're going throughout all the country. It's a lot of geopolitics, religion, culture, some food. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, we're sitting in an Ethiopian restaurant, as right. an example, discussing that as well uh, in, the, in the book. And uh, it's a way of learning about Israel in a wide way, and I hope in a digestible way as, way, uh, as well. Well, but I think what's also interesting uh, not just with your book, but when you take people and travel, you supply a lot of your personal stories. Right. So uh, when we went to Vyad Yashem, um, you know, I, I mean, in my head, I was like, I've been to the Holocaust Museum. Like, I was like, I'm, it's good to go, but like, I feel like I've seen the story. But the way you took us through it, I mean, we could have been there for days because right. there's so much there and it is, I don't want to get emotional. It's very emotional. The ending is crazy. Um, But you shared your family story, which changed the experience for everybody there. We weren't just looking at exhibits or looking at horrific pictures or, you know, we weren't looking, we weren't looking, we were hearing. And it, it really changed, it changed it for everybody, I think. For those who maybe knew a little bit about the Holocaust versus somebody like me who, you know, I've taken my kids a thousand times, like I have five children, so mm-hmm. I'm the parent, I've done it, and um, it's important, don't get me wrong, and Anne Frank, and all the important stories, but the way you did it was so different. So I, it's interesting that you incorporate your personal stories, your family stories, not just there, yeah. but it throughout the whole trip. Because you know all these people, you have all these professors, you have these mentors, you have people who you've talked to, like the people you've created in this book, who, who I think give you more. And I think sharing that really changes our experience. So first of all, people do learn through, through emotions and through stories. Mm-hmm. Stories is a, but in, in this case, I, I also know that it's effective to tell a story, but the truth is that I truly believe that at the end of the day, Israel is not a text. When you are learning by, 
I'll, I'll pick a far country, Canada, <laughs> by a Canadian professor about the Middle East, and mm-hmm. he has not been or he's not lived, he's not personally involved. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. So then you can go into statistics and all of those. If you want to learn about Israel, it is mainly a story about psychology. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just talked about what it means to be Jewish. It's it's mm-hmm. it's a case for the shrink. <laughs> it's a case. It's all psychological. Mm-hmm. The whole conflict is because the way we preserve our identity and. Mm-hmm. So if you don't bring yourself and your family story, because that is what it's all about, mm-hmm. I think we're missing out. And part of the reason that I am passionate about it, Israel, because mm-hmm. it's not my land. I belong to that land. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm part of it. Um, my dad arrived in 1948 for that war. So when you know, people are discussing, is it the war of independence or is it the Nakba according to narrative? I know how to present multi-narratives. Mm-hmm. I do have my own narrative. Of my course. dad was a 17 and a half year old kid running on those hills with no family mm-hmm. um, coming from Europe. I do have a narrative over there. But when I tell that story and when I get criticized and I'm able to get criticized and I'm well prepared to receive also a lot of things that we did wrong along the way, but you're criticizing my, my right. DNA. <laughs> right. Uh, that is you what can't it change is. your story, right. your I'm, history. I'm part of that story, Sure. which is making it fascinating, challenging at mm-hmm. the same time. My, I also have five kids. Right. The oldest one is going to the military this summer. Mm. So when we are talking about politics, for example, I can't ignore the fact that I'm emotionally involved sure. in that story. So I'm trying not to, or never, I, I do not want to emotionally manipulate anyone. But at the same time, it is important for people to understand, for me, but also when you're dealing with Palestinians or anyone else, first of all, we're talking about people. I'm sorry for taking us back there, but right now the worst thing, thing that's ha- that's not the worst thing, but the ter- a terrible, a, lot of bad a terrible thing that's happening with the headlines that are coming now from the earthquake right. is that we reached a number which people are starting to, it's becoming statistics. Mm-hmm. And that's the most terrible moment in an event. It's hard to put a face when, to 20,000. When it was, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because it was 15,000 and suddenly it's 20,000 and people already... They don't see if there's a difference between 20 or 22. And there is a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's why it's so important to bring those personal stories so that it's not a theoretical, statistical story. Mm-hmm. I um, completely get that. So let's talk about it. So you're here right now in the States doing talks around the country right. with your book. Tell us why you're doing it, what it's for, and, and what you're hoping to get out of it. I want, what I want people to get out of, of the book mm-hmm. and, um, is nuance. That was, that was, are you kidding? That, that was the word of our trip. One of the guys it. got it tattooed on his arm. Right. <laughs> I'm <Because> not joking. <laughs> if I, and, and you saw, I talked quite a lot about Israel and the Palestinians and I tried to, to deliver a fair, uh, story so mm-hmm. that we do understand the psychology of the Palestinians, of the Israelis, the fear, the anger, all of that. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a lot of numbers, the green line, the blue line, how many refugees, how, there's so much information. Mm. Very few people are able to access and understand the amount of information. And given the fact that most people are not intending to get a PhD about the topic, mm-hmm. if they would just have a respect to the complexity of the story, that is already a big thing. Today we are looking at the world of people going over headlines, Mm-hmm. You need to tell a story Quick. in a sentence. Right. <laughs> there is not one sentence that I can say about Israel mm-hmm. that is accurate. I actually, and if it is, it will be a lame one. 
Mm-hmm. If you want something deep, I haven't, I don't have it. Because it's not a cliche, it is complicated. So really what I'm trying for the book is people to respect the nuance, to mm-hmm. respect the complexity. They don't need to love this one or hate the other. You can actually be supportive of both. You can mm-hmm. also be frustrated with both. That's fine. Um, but whatever it is, nothing is black and right. There's no side that is completely right and the other completely wrong. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of... Shades of gray. Exactly. Yes. And that's really what we're trying to, what I'm trying to, well, to I teach, think, to write. Well, you're um, an amazing storyteller and communicator. And you said on the very first day, in the first 20 minutes of our trip, you said, at the end of this trip, you may look at me and have more questions than you have now. And I won't have all the answers because it's complicated. Right. And I really appreciated that. I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know if it was just going to be like a rah-rah Israel trip, you know, like birthright or something mm-hmm. like that. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but because of the context provided and because of the massive education that you were able to uh, parlay to us, we all walked out, maybe not with a better understanding, but we were better informed. And I think at the end of the day, that's what everybody should be, right? Hopefully. Excellent. Tell everybody, please, where they can buy this book. And can we find you somewhere? Are you on Instagram? Are you online? Right. How do we so see you book, and your five children? What's happening? So my five children, you come and have a cup of coffee on my kibbutz in the south of Israel. Next time I'm coming, I am going For to sure. do that. Yes. And the book is on Amazon, Israel Journey on Amazon. That's the easiest way to to find it. Um, my Instagram is Barrow Trails. My mm-hmm. Facebook is my own my own name, Michael we Bauer. Did. I also have a, a, a website. So if you just Great. Google my name. Okay, Michael Bauer. You'll find me. Excellent. It is such a treat to see thank you. you. Thank you so much. I'm just going to quickly wrap up. So thank you so much for joining me again today on Industry Night at the gorgeous Wine Lair Hotel. Just a reminder, we are now on YouTube. So please check out Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Subscribe, like, ask questions. Please participate. Uh, of course, you follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Tune into Foodie and the Beast every Sunday at 11 and 1500. Of course, you can download that as a podcast as well. Uh, tune into me on uh, WTOP. I don't have anything TV going on yet, but I will soon, and I'll keep you posted on that. Uh, what else do I have? I think that's it. Now, I just want to harken back to something that Michael said. Um, the earthquake. I don't know when this show will air, but at this point, over 20,000 people have perished and it is an insurmountable number but they need help so whether you donate to world central kitchen or the red cross or someplace there's lots of people that need help ukraine is still going on but every week i hope to remind you that if you can you should give in some way whether you volunteer provide money load up a box of goods whatever it is please find a way to participate um lastly i always ask you to take your kindness pills before you go anywhere with retail restaurants The struggle is real out there, people. So just be kind and uh, have a delicious week. Produced by HeartCast Media.